0: There was a time when the world was so young there had not yet been a sunrise. But even then, there was my brother, my captain, my podcast. Elves have their forests to protect, dwarves their mines, men their fields of grain. But we podcasters have the rings of power to talk about. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb.
1: And I'm Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweetin'.
0: Today's episode is Partings, episode 5 of The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power television show, now streaming wherever you may be. But first, our spoiler warning. We will be spoiling everything that has aired thus far of The Rings of Power, and we will be discuss- discussing all published Lord of the Rings materials as they may come up, be they Peter Jackson's films or Tolkien's other entries in The Legendarium. However, we will save speculation based on prior knowledge for the end in a special spoiler section. After a musical cue, if you want to remain curious about what comes next.
1: I finally have something to uh, pitch to you all this week, which is that um, I'm very excited that I've just recorded an episode with Friend of the Pod Kiefer at Danny Vegito, uh, uh, who does an amazing and really thoughtful and, and really interesting podcast called Select and Start, which is all about video games uh, and uh, people's relationships to them, which is just like a in premise for a podcast. Um, I am on this week uh, chatting about Breath of the Wild, which is the game to end all games. Uh, and we do also talk a little bit <laughs> about the Rings of Power. So if you want to hear more of that with a side of oh my god, isn't Breath of the Wild the best game in human history? Uh, Check that out this week. That is Select and Start on all your fave podcasting services.
0: Yeah. uh, First of all, Kiefer is excellent. His podcast is excellent. I was actually on the very first episode of Select and Start talking about Metal Gear Solid 3. So, uh, Kiefer has collected all of the my brother, my (laughs) captain, my podcast hosts for his little project. I'll also point you to um, an episode of Podcasts on Frontiers. Um, I think it's episode number 43, Courage Need Not Be Remembered, where me and Brian uh, bring on friend of the podcast, Mark Normandon, and we talk about Breath of the Wild to se- celebrate its uh, five-year anniversary as it was at the time. And it is, it is, in my opinion, like, if not the best game of all time, it's at least in that small discussion of games that are qualified to take that throne. Oh, yeah. So. um I love Breath of the Wild. It's one of the best things that's honestly ever happened to me. Um, make whatever conclusions about my life that you will <laughs> with that. Um, so I look forward to hearing Emily and Kiefer talk about it. Um, and we talked about it as well. And then uh, I'm going to be doing a guest appearance coming up on my friend's uh, baseball podcast called Batting Around, uh, hosted by my three friends, Steven, Jane, and Lauren. Um, it's a very fun, very leftist baseball podcast that spends as much time like making fun of people online as it does talking about (laughs) baseball um but actually it's actually a very thoughtful look at a lot of the labor issues in baseball um and kind of just the fun stuff that surrounds it and making fun of like the yankees and whatnot um it's a good time but anyways i'm gonna be on batting around mostly discussing rings and dragons (laughs) um i don't think any of them have really been watching any of these shows um but they kind of want me to come in um I guess people don't know this, but before I was like the Thrones guy online, I was a baseball guy <laughs> online. Um, that's why I came to Twitter. Um, and it's basically like kind of as my interest in baseball and sports broadly started waning is when I decided to dive more into podcasting, Thrones, comics, Lord of the Rings, all that stuff. Oh yeah, so, nerd um, cycle. It'll be, it'll, yeah, yeah. Uh, baseball is like a sport for nerds, especially when you're like me and like the stats guy. Um <laughs> It's just a different type of lore, you know?
1: <laughs> Classic. Awesome.
0: Uh, but uh, with all that out of the way, and of course, uh, we'll try to boost any work that me and Emily generally do. Um, we'll try to put in the My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast like timeline. Um, I don't do it with like my ongoing other projects because that would just be too much clutter. But anytime we do guest appearances, uh, we will pro- make sure you guys see that as well. So uh, we're going to move into our episode reaction and break down the non-spoiler section first. Emily, do you have a question for oh, me? Oh yes,
1: I do. So, um, between when we began covering the Rings of Power uh, 10 million years ago, and now, like, the world has changed, you know, feel it in the water, feel it in the earth, etc. <laughs> um, you know, like, the Queen of England, Hillary Mantel died, also Elizabeth Windsor died, uh, and perhaps more shockingly than all of these things, uh, Star Wars managed to release a TV show that didn't fucking suck. So... Given the context of a TV show that not only does not fucking suck, but actually rocks, which is to say Andor, I want to ask you, in possibly the most loaded question of all time, how do you think that Andor in three episodes, and like I guess like they've been like 30-minute episodes, so like in 90 minutes of runtime, stacks up in comparison uh to Rings of Power, which is now just over the halfway mark of season one?
0: Well, one interests me. I guess that's a, that's a one <laughs> way to compare it. Uh, so Andor, Andor debuted uh, just two days uh, before we we're recording this. And its first three episodes, which I'm going to just kind of treat as one extended pilot, um, has a supreme confidence to it. Um, it is, um, forgetting just the production side of it, just like The story it is telling, everything is baked into what is shown on screen or detailed through dialogue or, you know, nonverbal reactions or just what's being shot. It cuts between settings, it cuts between characters, it cuts between timelines without any real handholding. Like there's a cry on to just kind of start the first scene just to kind of place it in the Star Wars timeline. But other than that, it just kind of picks up and goes. There's no references either, you know, like nudge, nudge, wink, wink to stuff that we know from other Star Wars stuff uh, or even things that are more subtle. Like there's no like Punda Baba, like walking in the background of the town. <laughs> um, it is all very much trying to be its own thing. And it's all very much driven by dialogue and character relationships that already feel lived in when we get to them. Um, in terms of like a Star Wars property, I honestly don't think I have felt anything like this since. The most Eisley Cantina, yeah. where it's just like the world already exists, and this show is just putting me there. Whereas everything else, even the stuff I really like from Star Wars, feels like oh, this was clearly built out, um, and then here comes the characters to walk into that scenario. But a lot of this feels like it existed. Uh, of course, it existed. It's whatever, <laughs> but also it doesn't exist because it's fiction. Yeah, uh, but it just like it has a confidence to it. It feels like it is not interested in like. Creating a piece of art that BuzzFeed will write the twenty things you missed in this week's Andor, <laughs> and absolutely those media outlets are going to do that. Yeah. And there are stuff in the background, like I think someone sh- like Ochia Bestune's ship was in there somewhere, or a ship that looks like his. I I refuse to believe that's a direct Ochi reference, <laughs> but um, secret Ochi. I guess the thing. Yeah, I guess the thing is this. Andor feels like, hey, I am going to tell you a story you do not know in any capacity. um, And we're going to do it like you're fucking adults. Like you can follow what these characters are doing. Not everything has to be told to you. If we cut back to a flashback of a character, we're not going to explain this was 20 years ago or anything like that. We're not even really have a framing device. Sometimes a door opens and all of a sudden you're in a different part of the timeline. Whereas this, everything feels like it is beholden to the Lord of the Rings. Uh, films. Um, So everything in it is either like a cheap imitation of it or it feels like, hey, you remember this thing from the other thing? Well, here it is (laughs) kind of, but lesser and through the Jeff Bezos filter. Um, I feel that's kind of like an all over the place answer, but it's just a big part of art, and I hate to use this word like this, is just vibes. And, you know, a lot of that is when you break it down, it's like tone, mood, the coherency of production, um just how interesting the things are on screen and the vibes are just so good for andor yep. and the vibes are lacking. <laughs> I will just say charitably for the rings of power. Um you could use much other words and I think there are there like I said like I will say there is stuff I still like in this episode and the show broadly, but as a whole it just feels like I don't know. I feel like I'm watching like Marvel's Hawkeye. And I'm not just saying that because all the elves look like Jeremy (laughs) Renner. But like, it's just, it's completely disposable television, disposable media. It's like what Netflix cranks out a hundred times a week. Like, here's a new thing that you can watch and never have to think about again. When the whole point of doing this podcast is, hey, I watched these Lord of the Rings films 20 years later, (laughs) and I still literally think about them on a daily basis. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, like, I, I can't, I can't possibly agree more. And I think, um, the, the funny thing is, right. So Andra came out on Wednesday, I think it was, um, my week has been a mess. So at some point previously, um, Andor came out and I, she also lives in Scotland where they don't use the seven day calendar. No, we so haven't invented that thing. yet. Like on the sieve, uh, like trait tree we're, we're going to get there. We're, we've almost got enough points to invest in it, but we, we will get there. Um, so it came out on Wednesday and I like had this moment when I was watching it where I was like, I, this has ruined my ability to watch the Rings of Power. And we even did the this kind of really sick, like sicko shit, uh, my partner Connor and I, because he was way behind on Rings of Power. So we watched Andor and then the very next day we caught up on like three episodes of Rings of Power. And like the contrast between the two, I like felt my soul wither and die and I was like I don't know that I can like cover these next three episodes of whatever it is uh, four episodes of Rings of Power when I know what Andor has just done to my like thoughts on like because like everything that I previously thought about like the viability of like quote unquote prequels right I feel like Andor has just kicked down the door on like I, you know this whole idea that prequels are just like a a series of kind of like so, so basically like I, I think this TV show right now right is like A whole bunch of characters that lack any depth or sophistication who do things, who move around, who say lines in service of the next possible reference. Um, And I feel like for me, like in this episode in particular, there's this one line that like I kind of had to like pause my thing and walk away and just be like, don't put on Andor, you have to finish the show. Um, But it's when Durin (laughs) is like to Elrond. So Elrond's delivering some like, I don't know, foppish fucking monologue. Um, And Durin literally stamps his feet on the ground and says, stop speaking in poetic terms and give it to me straight. Or actually, <laughs> because this show is literally just a series of incredibly lazy references. He actually references Gollum's line, which is give it to me oh, raw. God, <laughs> And it's just like, <laughs> and I think the thing is right. Like, like this whole idea where, where like a, a character is saying to what I would already say is like kind of some weak shit writing is saying, don't give me the poncy, fancy poetic writing it like it cuts to the kind of core ideology of this show, right? Because like, like, okay, so, so there's this kind of quote that I think about a lot, which is it's um Wilfred Owen, who who's a World War I poet who, like Tolkien, was in the trenches, but unlike Tolkien actually died in the trenches. Um, and he right before he died, he was working on a collection of, of his poems about the war. Uh and and his preface to uh this collection includes the line, which kind of is just stuck with me forever. I've got it like on post notes like a mad woman, but it's Above all, I am not concerned with poetry. My subject is war and the pity of war. The poetry is in the pity. And, like, at first, that kind of seems like what Durin's character is saying in this episode, which is, like, who gives a shit about poetry? There's so much else that's important uh, to talk about and to do. Like, Elrond, why are you saying this shit to me? But but what actually matters is that, like, that was written in the preface to a collection of poems. And so, like, Wilfred Owen is saying there are more there are things more important than poetry. Actually, you know what I'm gonna crib from Ethan Hawke. There's that great video of Ethan Hawke where he's like, you know art is art is an accessory that for, you know, 99% of the time, art is an accessory that you don't really need. Um, but then there is that moment when, you know, you either suffer tragedy, a death, uh, and you want to know that someone else has felt pain like you feel, or you 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 go through something so brilliant, you know, you fall in love and, and you want to sing that love to the world. And then the only thing that you can turn to in those moments is, is poetry. And I think Ethan Hawke's take on that is like the optimistic take on Wilfred Owens, which is like, there are things that are like, Inarticulable about the human experience, and and there are things that you know there are times when prose just does not suffice. Like a, a a simple kind of objective observation just does not suffice to communicate what we need to communicate about like the the kind of universal and also deeply individual things about the human experience. And and J.R. Tolkien gets that. Um, and and J.R. Tolkien writes you know poetry inside of his books, but he also writes poetically in his books, and he never worries about. You know, needing to just, you know, quote, give it, give the meat and give it raw, um, because he trusts that the the kind of abstractions and like the the kind of symbolic uh, and and poetical language that he uses is in itself conveying something that cannot possibly be conveyed otherwise. And I'm like watching the show and seeing one of the characters say that to what I would call dog shit poetry. Anyways, like Elrond's line before that is neither like inaccessible in in terms of like the point he's trying to make nor is it particularly like flowery because it's just really shit poetry if that is what they're calling poetry and it's like these guys are so against anything beautiful like they will take things that are beautiful that are perfectly stage managed so like they want the like flowery indie 2010 bullshit because that is like focus group tested as like things that that are pretty, or they want the explosions because they know that, like, explosions do well in action films, but they don't want the, like, difficult art that, like, takes thinking about what you are doing to make, and, like, seeing Andor, right, where there are all of these moments where, like, characters just look at one another, or they just linger on something, and you just, like, They are not telling you, hey, look at this green leaf. This green leaf means that, like, the world is about to end because of colonial strip mining. They're just showing you the green leaf. But you know what the green leaf means because you are a human being and you're not fucking idiot. And if it were in this show, they'd show you the green leaf and one character would look at another character and say, this green leaf, like, symbolizes colonial strip mining. And another character would be like, don't use such big words around me, me talk dumb. And I'm like, I'm so sick of it now. I'm so sick of it. Anyways, so all that out of the way, this was my thinking going into it. And then uh, Taco Bell opened up in Dundee yesterday. So today I have my first hot Taco Bell in three years, and now I love the show. Ooh, that might actually make me go get Taco Bell after this. (laughs) So this might be hard
0: to contextualize now, even for people who watched The Lord of the Rings in 2001. But when those films came out, they were radically different than whatever the popular zeitgeist of film was, whether in terms of blockbuster, whether in terms of just dialogue, like there were people who like went to fellowship. And I remember seeing comments and message words like I couldn't get behind the dialogue. It's not that, like it wasn't trying to contort itself to fit whatever the times were. And granted, we criticize it now saying, oh, it's clearly a product of the times, (laughs) but at least relative to the stuff that was coming out around it or in the same time frame, it was not trying to be. Star Wars prequels or The Matrix, it was clearly like, we have a vision of what The Lord of the Rings is, and we're going to kind of stick to that you know, through thick and thin and try our best not to dumb it down or be too hand-holdy, even though, again, we've found points where it is. This feels like of a piece with all the other media that comes out in 2022. Um, this, you know, you can slap a whole other name on it and say it was made by Netflix, and I'd be like, yeah, whatever. Um, There is nothing that makes this stand out from the other stuff it's up against. Whereas Andor or even House of the Dragon, I can point to here's XYZ reasons why this is not like other stuff that's being made right now. Um, And this just feels whatever. It feels like part of the churn more than anything, especially with Andor out now.
1: Yeah. And I think one of the things and I keep kind of harping on this, but I'm harping on this for a reason. Right. So, um. Based off of the tax returns that were filed in New Zealand for season one of uh, Lord of the Rings on Prime, whatever the show is called, Rings of Power, um, they probably spent around $462 million, that's US dollars, uh, on, uh, on just season one, just filming season one. And that doesn't include the amount of money that they spent to get the rights. And a generous guess As to what the budget of Andor was, is probably hovering somewhere around 100 to 120 million dollars. Again, US dollars. Um, Obi Wan Kenobi, the TV show, which we know they spent a lot of money on, was at the 120 million range. And the Book of Boba Fett was at the 100 million range. So it's probably closer to the Book of Boba Fett in terms of budget. But the reason I bring this up is the budget is not an issue here, right? And actually, well, actually, the budget is not a constraint here. The budget is an issue, though. Because I think what we're seeing in this episode so far that we're not seeing in in, uh, the Andor series and and it's 90 minutes that we've seen so far is um, throwing money at things when they don't have ideas. Um, And I think what they basically just done is said... Just throw as much money into like building up a set and, you know, slapping kind of fancy camera angles and fancy filters on things to kind of distract. You know, it's the fucking, it's the bread and circuses, except if it were only circuses and not bread. Um, And and Andor isn't doing that. And Andor has still a super massive budget, but it's a fifth of what (laughs) the budget for this show is and look at what they've been able to accomplish because they actually know what story they want to tell and they actually have something worth saying and they're actually engaging with the like artistic world around them and, and even the world around them and they're not concerned with like covering up things that like may not be as nice or as sleek with just pretty things so that you don't think too hard about it whereas this show is nothing but covering up things that don't really matter with things that are pretty so you don't think too hard about it.
0: Yeah, um, we'll get into the episode now, but like, I totally agree with that. There was like a million times like during this episode, whereas like, oh, they're playing up the score or pulling out to these, you know, quote unquote, majestic shots just because there's barely enough going on with the yeah. actual character interactions. Like tr- it has the trappings of a good show yeah. as opposed to like being a good show. Yeah. So... um We'll uh, start going through the plot now. We'll try to break this down again kind of by like plot thread and geography. It is going to get a little messy with the Newman or stuff for this episode just because there's like two or three plot lines, if you want to call them that, (laughs) uh, running through it. Uh, But we'll start with the Harfoots because they're mostly sequestered on their own for now. Um, It starts with Nori and the stranger like sitting upon... Looks like salt flats or something, mm-hmm. like uh, like a near-flat wetland area. I think it, like a decent landscape shot, and the score is pretty nice. And, you know, I think Nori is trying to explain the concept of migration to the stranger, um, that they're always, you know, looking out for big people and other dangers. I forget what word Nori was using for Peril. it. It was before I... Peril. Okay, I, I could not make it up, and I did not have my subtitles <laughs> on because I'm watching on my computer now. Um, so I could not pick out that word. It's, I don't know. Um, you know, it, he, he, I, is he going to be Gandalf? Is he just going to be like old Liam Neeson? I don't really know what they're going for here, but, um, what I say Liam Neeson, I that's not, <laughs> um, it's, it's Qui-Gon Jinn reveal. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> that I
1: would watch. <laughs> yeah. I, like, I don't know. So I think yeah, at this point, I'm convinced he's not Gandalf. I think he might be Sauron. um, I like I they're like my problem with this right with the the kind of guessing game on this is like theoretically there are loads of people he could be like he's got a moon symbol on or he has a moon symbol at one point and I'm like okay he might be the Maiar Tillian who's meant to move the moon and like I guess because they kind of had him enter with like a meteor like then that could be kind of a sign that like the moon isn't being moved right but like do I really think that these guys have read far enough to get to the question of Tillian and the Silmarillion no I don't think they have so it probably is Gandalf but like Who fucking knows at this point?
0: It's one of those things where, okay, if it's not going to be Gandalf, then do we need to do a whole mystery box approach to who he is? Yes, Or, like, it doesn't have to be Gandalf, you know, Saruman... Sauron, whatever, whoever it might be. But if it is going to be someone else, then they are kind of wasting time or they're like boosting the SEO, like search <laughs> quality value of this show by having people's like, who is Sauron or Sauron theories or stuff like that yeah. um, in the show. And I think that's so.
1: kind of the key thing for me, right? Like, w- you know, uh with the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings, you know, I will have my issues with the canon and where they deviate from the canon or where I think maybe they aren't like as trusting of the audience as they could be. But like, um, if the fact that, that this podcast exists doesn't, uh, you know, evidence the fact that, like, there, is thing, there are things in the Lord of the Rings movies to talk about that are not just the plot and questions about what will happen next, then, then nothing will. Um, but with this show, there's nothing really to talk about except for who is this guy What is this guy doing? Which next reference on the list of approved references, like copyright approved references, will this thing be? And like, I just think it's like so devoid of any sort of like personality or any sort of like vitality. Like, yeah, it could be Gandalf. Could also just be fucking nobody because the show has nothing to say. (laughs)
0: Yeah, um, I definitely get that. Even looking at most of my notes, even though I put in some jokes or occasionally say, oh, that was a decent you know, camera shot or something. Most of my notes in this outline are basically plot thing happened, Yeah, uh, which is very much not like when I'm writing up my notes for House of the Dragon. It's like, ooh, this has me thinking about like million different character motivations and this, that or another. Whereas a lot of this just feels like pieces moving on a map, which the show makes very <laughs> literal by just... Having them move around on a map while showing us the map. um I will cop to kind of liking. So, um once the these two finish having their talk and they like rejoin the Harfoot caravan, I guess, um, they do like a little montage of them traveling over lands. There are some good shots in there. Um, Poppy does a little bit of singing, which I know is like <sighs> I want to put aside the lyrics of the song. I actually think like her singing is pretty, pretty solid.
1: It's cute. Yeah.
0: Like I would go way f- more for that. Um, I'm kind of just wanting the show to be like montages and action sequences. Cause those are the only moments I feel like I'm alive as a human <laughs> being watching the show. Um, because a lot of the other stuff is just kind of whatever to me or just so rote. Um, whereas I can at least go for these kind of musical and audio flourishes. I thought it was really cute. I thought it was a decent montage. Um, it shows them getting stuck in like swamps and bogs, which Again, it's kind of hitting notes similar to us. And I'll give Emily a spot to give us a little bit of geography here in a second. Um, And while they kind of have this montage, we do get kind of a cut to like the original ground zeros where the stranger like crashed into the earth. Um, and we see Eminem and yeah. I assume uh, D 12. I forget who rolls with Eminem, uh, <laughs> but like we basically see his whole posse roll up. No, these are actually uh, Britty Sisson, um, who appear to be some kind of Sauron worshiping or some kind of cultist, whether they're directly linked to Sauron or whatnot. Um, but they kind of find his ground zeros, which is supposed to make us think that this stranger with the Harfoots is like a herald of the enemy or Sauron himself or whatever it might be. Um, But uh, after a little bit of a montage and showing like, Hey, the stranger's here to help them get their like wheelbarrows out of like the gutter, whatever, you know, stuff kind (laughs) of happening. They find themselves in a bare wood. There's wolves about, they're talking about people getting hungry and while they're out gathering mushrooms, wolves attack I would say this is probably near the bottom of my wolves attacks <laughs> in visual Lord of the Rings sequences, but I do actually, I, I I don't hate it. It's just like, I'm not entirely sure what we're doing here. I like the idea of the stranger fighting off the wolves. Um, he does the graveyard smash and <laughs> uh, causes the ground to shake and scare the wolves away. I don't really know what any of this is supposed to be. Yeah, um, It feels like it's something out of Elden Ring yep. where he has an AOE attack and like, <laughs> sure. Okay. And the wolves are annoying in yeah, range, so I'll give them God, that. God, yeah. The 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 best I could think of in terms of analysis is this vaguely reminds me of the location where um at the end of two towers when Gollum, uh Sam, and Frodo have left Askiliath and they're walking through kind of a dead wood in presumably Athelion yeah. on the east side of the river. Um I know that's not the location, but I think it's kind of Pulling from just kind of the same tone or imagery, um, you're not supposed to feel safe in this area. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. The the magic thing was kind of interesting for me because I was like, this is obviously a video game. Uh, Cause like, you know, we talked about this in the gladrial episode. I think this is like episode eight, 17, 18, maybe um, of our normal coverage. Um, We talk about like the tangibility and intangibility of magic and Tolkien, and this is just straight up video game stuff. Uh, And like, at least in video games, it makes sense because it's like how uh, players interact with the world. I don't know what the fuck they're doing here. Who cares? Um, The geography of this, right? Okay. So this is my other bitch is I don't like how they're using maps in this show to obfuscate locations because they keep showing locations, but they're obviously in this stupid mindset of spoilers are the end, and if anybody figures out based off of like uh, well-set plot beats and foreshadowing and symbols where this plot might be going, we failed as narr- as writers because the goal of a writer is to trick the audience because we're so much smarter than the audience. Like All they're doing with these maps is being like, you can get a little glimpse so you see that things are happening, but not enough that you figure out the plot. Uh, nobody's going to figure out the plot because there is no fucking plot, so just show us the goddamn map. Anyways, I paused the map <laughs> to try and take a look, um, and what they're doing is... They are moving down Anduin, skirting the northeastern edge of the emin Wheel. Um, and my first notes for today's episode is when um Nori is explaining the the grove, and that's how where they go at one point in their migration. And I wrote, if the orchard is the grove that the elves and the orcs were cutting down in uh, Arendir's bit, I will become the fucking Unabomber. Uh, and then they cut to the map almost instantly, and it does look like that the grove or the orchard is going to be the grove that they cut down, and I about cried laughing. Um, I am saying this for accountability's sake. I will get a map up, like a full-size map of Middle-earth up, uh, where I try to pinpoint all of the um, like locations that we've seen so far, because I think this stuff is bullshit that they're doing, um, and I know a lot of people are quite confused about the geography. I think based off of this little montage, I've got slightly better sense of where the, the Harfoots are, uh, and uh, certainly where the Southlanders are, so I should have that up hopefully before the this episode goes out to patrons on Monday-ish.
0: I think something I think about is I am the filthy film Peter Jackson guy, like I, you know, not as attached to the text, Um, but even like just being a movie guy, I had Googled and committed the map of Middle Earth to memory. like since, like, I was able to get a good Google result, like, in 2003 <laughs> or 2004. Like, I know where things are. And, in fact, I would rather have the dramatic irony of knowing, oh, we're exactly here. Yeah. Like, if we're going to be in the spot that's going to eventually be, like, the Dead Marshes or something, I would rather know about it now rather than it be some kind of, like, end-of-episode reveal that's not going to have any weight with me. Yeah. I'd rather just um situate it there. And um, I'm... I don't have a lot of like Game of Thrones stuff to talk about with this episode. So this will probably be the last bit, but I've been thinking back recently about just how smart it was for that show to have its opening credits be a map. Um, You're going to be zooming all over this world. Here's where all the main action is. Here's where the characters you care about are situated or are relevant to political machinations. Um, It's just such a smart way to situate you into the world so they don't have to have clumsy dialogue or obfuscated transitions just to like kind of lead you somewhere but not show you where they're taking you it just feels very i don't know just incoherent to me or it just feels unnecessary complex because i don't think anyone watching this show whether they're um you know a tolkien reader or just a peter jackson fan they know what middle earth looks like if you don't know it's like it's hard to watch those movies and not get a sense of like where you're going and stuff they you know fudge stuff but i know where the Misty Mountains are, I know where the White Mountains are, I know where Minas Tirith is, I know where Helm's Deep is. I don't need you to try and hide those things from me because it's gonna reveal where plots are going. Yeah. Um that feels like unconfident filmmaking to go back to our Andor channel.
1: Well, and I think this is also the thing, because I think this montage in particular and the kind of conversations that happen in and around it, um, uh, kind of uh, uh, like highlight this problem with like the 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 showrunners don't trust us as audience members they think we're fucking idiots um and they may sometimes be true but i'm not always a fucking idiot um and um and so they think that the way the only way that they could possibly like raise the stakes in a given episode or a given plotline is by withholding information um and and like the the problem is for things like you say like dramatic irony to work the audience has to have all of the information and the people writing have to trust that the audience are smart enough to put two and two together and get that sinking pit in their stomach all on their own. And like, there's a bit, right, where... um Gandalf, Saruman, whoever, dude with long hair, uh, is uh, speaking rapidly in a foreign language, and and I hate this because in the subtitles they just say speaking in a different language, but they and it's definitely Quenya, but they sub Quenya whenever the elves are speaking it, so they're obviously hiding it from deaf people. In the subtitles, for the sole purpose of stopping any spoilers, anyways, I think these guys are cunts, so I uh, tried to translate it, um, and it appears to roughly mean um, light shine through to a friend in need. So when the stranger's, like, got his hand in the ice and he's, like, speaking all of these things, um, it would seem to me that he is calling out to some source of light, and um, asking in Quenya for him to be healed Uh, through some sort of like connection or bridge, which appears to be his connection to either the water or ice. uh, And that is all done in Quenya. That information is withheld from people who need it in the subs. The only reason I was able to get and translate that is because I am a hearing person, but but that means I have an advantage over deaf people because of the subtitles of the show, because they are so obsessed with protecting spoilers for a plot that sucks and doesn't matter that they would rather like fuck over deaf people and i'm like i hate all of these people no fucking wonder jj abrams and his like tiny P braid had to intervene to get these guys a job because they're just like from that school of thought that's like stupid mystery boxes above all else i'm so sorry i was chill about this before this happened
0: (laughs) uh your notes wouldn't indicate that you were ever chill about this (laughs) but i'll let you have it um just real quick to wrap up the scene, so it looks like that ice that he's saying words to, like, starts crawling up his arm, and then, like, Nori's there and trying to, like, hey, what are you doing? What are you doing? And then she kind of gets trapped in the ice as she's holding on to him, um, and then there's, like, flashes to his fiery landing, and she's blown away, and then everyone's left, like, what the fuck, and that's all there is to it. Yep. Um I don't think anything else happens. And then unless cut away because
1: plan. we can't have anything without a cut in the middle of the action. <laughs> um, I do want to flag though, there's a bit where uh, the other Hobbit girl, whose name I can never remember, uh, she uh, has Copy. a line when they're walking through the woods where she's like, uh, what madness led them this way, which is Gimli's line about Fangorn. And that is when I stopped and went back and counted how many Peter Jackson references they'd made in the first 17 minutes. Because I think that happens at, like the 17 minute mark which is an insane amount of time. Nevertheless, it happens at like the 17-minute mark. And I think they were averaging one Peter Jackson film reference, not J.R.R. Tolkien book reference. Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings references every 90 seconds in this episode.
0: Yeah. Um, I flagged several, and I'm going to bring them up as we go. Uh, We're going to leave the Harfoot plot for now, but before we leave, um, I do want to point everyone to a a movie that no one's ever heard of, Return of the Jedi. (laughs) Uh, Because the... uh, um, as a C-3PO apologist, I yeah. like point at the whole Jabba Palace uh, scenario where when C-3PO is Jabba's translator, they don't always flash the subtitles for the Huttese, like what uh is actually saying. They're very specific what lines they subtitle versus what lines they have 3PO repeat or this, that or another. And it's just very definitely done. That's like how you do... That's how you use subtitles to help tell story. Um, This is just, like you said, they're just, they found something that they had to subtitle, but they couldn't give away what it is. So they have to just kind of clumsily cover it up. Um, So, and like, I don't, for a lot of people, like, and, you know, I'm not trying to uh, take this from a disability standpoint, but subtitles are just... um, the text of things that people are saying, but, like, really thoughtful filmmakers will use, like, especially foreign language subtitles or, like, alien languages in these stories very effectively in terms of, what is what can you understand the moment it is said what is coming through a translation or someone possibly oh, cleaning up absolutely.
1: the words absolutely yeah you know what and again to make the comparison to andor andor does this really well because you can tell um with the subs for andor that they've they've got someone in subtitling it who's obviously incredibly thoughtful because there are moments when they're not just describing the fact that a sound is happening so it's not just like there are chimes in the distance. It's describing the quality of the distance. So it'll be, or the quality of the sound. So it'll be like, you know, a heavy metallic clanging happening or, um, clanging that um, like echoes back and grows softer as the scene progresses, and that is really thoughtful subtitling. And so it means that when they get to Kanari, which is a language that um, is spoken in in the in in the show that we as the audience have no frame of reference for, and the showrunners are not intending us to understand when they subtitle it just saying speech in Kanari, we can trust that that is just because we also know that the hearing audience aren't going to get more information. So it's not like the hearing audience have a leg up over the deaf audience there. Everybody has the same amount of information, but the subtitlers have been very clever and very thoughtful and very careful and caring about how they've done it. And so it really lends itself to the the sort of effect that this is a TV show that actually cares about the point of subtitles and isn't just doing it so they don't get fucked up by ADA complaints.
0: Very much so. Um, we'll hop over to Aaron, Deer, and Bronwyn. Honestly, I'm kind of upset. We've spent 40 minutes oh, and we've barely talked about this episode. So, um, I think the big stuff going on here is, um, they basically have a fight or flight scenario at the Ostirith, the watchtower of Ostirith, which I know <laughs> you'll, you'll, you'll have a point about that later. Um, and we see. Basically, like half the people are like, we're gonna stay here and fight. Those are the people that kind of Bronwyn and Arondir are trying to lead, and then the Waldrig is the other half. He like opposes this idea, um, and he's like, I'd rather go bow down to Adar and pledge themselves to Sauron or whatever it is. Uh, a couple of things here. It seems weird that he's like, I don't want to go anywhere led by an elf in front of Arondir, and then he just like pledges to Adar. Um, even if he thinks he's Sauron, it's, like, very inconsistent in the anti-elf whatever that they're trying to do here. Mm. Uh, the second thing is when Waldroy goes to Adar's camp later, there's this very clunky. you're Sauron, are you not? Like, <laughs> Jesus Christ. But also, like, I really, really preferred, like, I'm going to say the Jackson films here. Yep. Like, I just prefer them to say the enemy. Um, it creates like a sense that it extends beyond just this one guy or this other guy or his lieutenant or whatever. It's like, it feels like you're tackling evil incarnate. Uh, But when everything is just like Sauron this, Sauron that, it feels like we're going after a guy. It's like the difference between Darth Vader and the Sith. One has a feeling that causes dread because it's almost bigger than any one person and maybe can't even be destroyed versus there's a guy we need to find and kill him maybe. Yeah.
1: Um, I I also like I hate to uh, reference Harry Potter of all things but there's this great little line and it's Emma Watson's delivery of it that has really made it stick in my head Um, but I think it's in like the second movie where she's like fear of a name only increases fear of the thing itself Um, and I think that's exactly it right like when when all of these characters who we have seen are like strong and powerful characters are scared of saying the name or very like specific about when they will actually employ the name that name has a whole bunch more power Um, and so when they can only you know euphemize it and only refer to him in in, in sort of the abstract, then we go, oh shit, this guy really means something. Like, you know, the emperor only being the emperor. And we didn't get fucking Sheev as a name for like 30 years afterwards. And that was scary as hell. And now he's literally just Sheev, Sheev the meme. Um, And I wish they kind of had trust in their audience that the audience will get that when they say the enemy, they mean Sauron and not presumably whoever this dude's petty fucking feuds are with.
0: Yeah, no, I think Fellowship of the Ring did this wonderfully because when Gandalf's explaining all this to Frodo and Frodo's like, but Sauron's dead, right? And all of a sudden the ring starts talking to them. Mm-hmm. That like instantly tells you, like, oh shit, like this is a name. And it's the same thing with Gandalf, like, I will not utter the black speech here or whatever. Yep. Um, it creates a sense of tone and misery, whereas this again just feels like a mystery box. Yeah. Uh, later on in these scenes at Austerith, uh, we see Aaron Deere trying to kind of like bond with Theo, who is Bronwyn's kid and still possibly maybe Aaron Deer's kid. We still haven't seen the kid's years. Um, there's a, a, a moment where he's trying to teach him how to be a better archer, um, and he gives him an arrow. And for some reason, when he was handing them the arrow, I was thinking of, I think it's called the Red Arrow, which is kind of like the book version of the lighting of the beacons, yeah. or rather how Gondor calls for aid. I don't think that's supposed to be like specifically that but it just was giving that vibe so to speak um, at this point Theo shows Arondir the like sword hilt the broken like the blood sword as I like to call it and Arondir is like I know you know, I know your face <laughs> and he, it's like it's like a symbol that's like burnt into a tree nearby or it's in the watchtower but it clearly looks like something left by Sauron or the enemy um, it really felt like some Rise of Skywalker Wayfinder yeah. shit to me um, and then uh, following that up, um, Bronwyn and Aaron Deere have a little chat, and Bron- Bronwyn seems like she wants to surrender now, mm-hmm. which is kind of weird because opening the scenario, uh, she's like the one who's saying we have to stand and fight. And granted, I get having cold feet before the battle. In fact, that's something Lord of the Rings has depicted a little bit mm-hmm. to you know some degree. But like, it just feels like such a strange turn. Yeah. Um. And also, it just feels very like. Infantilizing of the character after we've already seen her like behead an orc and like she led the people here. She's the one who said we have to defend the people here. Um, like I like her having doubts, like Theoden has doubts before the battle of Helm's Deep uh-huh. and stuff, but uh, this isn't that. This just feels like a weird character turn just to create a little bit of conflict. yeah. Well,
1: because they're definitely trying to make it like Theoden and Aragorn before Helm's Deep or even Aragorn and Legolas before Helm's Deep.
0: Yeah, I was about to say, even with the shots, because a lot of this is set with. Um, Aaron Deere and Bronwyn looking out from the watchtower to the like many fires of the orcs that are supposedly coming to them. I don't know where all those orcs come from. <laughs> um, because that was like a lot of campfires. Um, so it I don't think they've done a huge great job of setting up the scale of what the orc contingency is here. Cause when you think of them as burrowing underneath the ground and then having these like shoddy tents with like to keep out the sun, it did not look like these were like 3 million, like the numbers that marched on Helm's Deep, but that's what the shot here in this episode kind of
1: gives. The sun Um, thing is cracking me up as well because they've made such a big deal. So so I get in a lot of arguments about this, but I don't think that, like, I think people are wildly misinterpreting when Tolkien says that the orcs don't like the sun to mean that it is lethal to it. Like I also don't like the sun. I just wear sunglasses. Like that is pretty much the position that the orcs are at. Like it's not gonna kill them. They're not gonna burn up under the sunlight. Whatever. I've obviously lost that fight with this stupidest shit show. Um, however, it is very funny that they've spent all of this time setting this up. But in the last episode, they've got those orcs that are running around outside at the farm that um, Theo and his racist pal go to. And I was like, it is literally like 30 seconds between scenes when they're like, don't forget, all of the orcs die. Uh, like uh, Iron Deer was able to keep. whole bunch of the orcs back because he cut down their like awning uh, and so they couldn't come running chasing out of them and then the very next scene was like a whole bunch of orcs walking around in the sunlight like (laughs) ah no consistency in this and it's such a dumb plot device Uh, the one thing i also really think is funny about this is that Bronwyn hasn't changed her dress in like weeks now and i really wish that amazon would get on amazon prime and order her a new dress because i'm so sick of saying this blue thing
0: you don't like sports bra, but middle earth for her look because <laughs> Jesus Christ. No, I agree. It looks such a contemporary outfit, um, which is especially funny because most of the villagers she's with are like in literal rags. Yeah. Um, and it, it just, it's a very strange choice. I Look, she's got boobs and we need to see them. Yep. So I get the low neckline, <laughs> but like Jesus Christ, yeah. like her outfit is something else. <laughs> Um, so, we'll hop over and tackle the various Numenor things oh. um, that are happening. Uh, first, we'll do keeping up with the Seal Doors. Um, <laughs> essentially, I, I don't know if they have a family last name, but uh, seal Doors works for me. Uh, so, basically, we're seeing um, at the end of last episodes, like Galadriel's going to lead a contingent of Numenorians to the Southlands and do some stuff. And here we see them making preparations for said voyage. Oh. Um, Isildur and his father Elendil have a chat Um, There's a lot of like vague Isildur what is your purpose And things <laughs> it's like I feel a calling Yada yada you, you know Fill in whatever rote dialogue you want for there But essentially the big thing is that Isildur is being prevented from uh, Joining this expedition God for good reason um, he's such el- a
1: little Shithead
0: like, Elendil, um, like, specifically, like, forbids him. And then later on, there's, a, like, a little drinking party before the big voyage, which, hey, at least someone's having fun. I enjoy that. Um, and then a door like, uh, what's it called? Comes up to his friends. Is like, hey, can you stow me a board for this? And it feels like that, um, the itchy and scratchy movie episode of The Simpsons where Homer goes to the theater and puts, gives them a picture of Bart and says, do not let this kid uh, watch this movie. And it's basically, like... Sorry, man, there, we have the sign that says do not admit and that they're just like, we can't bring you on. It's also like really broy. is like, if you stow me away, I will let you punch me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which I, I, I don't know. Like if that was in like Game of Thrones, I'd be like, okay, that kind of makes sense because a lot of these people are just fucking brutes. Yeah. Um, but that just maybe the Numenoreans are brutes. No. Maybe these guys are brutes. But that's not what this show is or what this culture yells at me is like people just waiting to punch another person yeah. um it feel again it feels like something that'd be out of like i don't know something I I don't I don't even no. know. But it just it felt very inorganic.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, like the thing for me is, right? And this is why I think that like the Second Age generally or Numenor specifically probably really shouldn't have ever been put on film. Um is like these are the Jews that Moses led led to safety. This is the Exodus of the Jews. Like there are no personalities besides no major personalities besides Moses in this because these are like this is a story that is that is telling a very specific point about like the 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 value of piety, the value of spiritual discipline, and the value of staying the fucking line when all of the people around you are f- trying to force you out of your faith, like they're constantly having this, like, crisis of faith and generally acting like a little shithead, and him and all of his pals—by the way, one of his pals' names, uh, I just twigged this, is called Otamo, which, uh, which is, in Quenya, literally just Mason. Like, it's not, like, the name Mason, it's just, like, Mason or Sculptor. So, these showrunners <laughs> have been so lazy, they couldn't even modify— a noun to put on a slightly, like, more, like, like, like put on either, like, a, a, an a gentle suffix to make, like, one who, who is a sculptor or just use any of the standard, like, nominative suffixes. Anyways, stupid grape. I don't care. These guys obviously can't read. Uh, but like, there's something kind of strange about taking what is meant to be a, a kind of parable about the importance of keeping your faith and turning it into what if this were animal house, but incredibly unfunny.
0: Yeah, I, I thought his name was awesome which is a South Park reference when um, Eric Cartman tried to pretend he was a robot in service of butters. But if you do not get that reference, I do not blame you. Though we might do a South Park episode for our Patreon at some point. Uh, about the Lord of the Rings <laughs> episode, not just uh, randomly starting to cover South Park out of nowhere. Um, but anyways, uh, Isildur, because his buddies won't smuggle him onto the ship, decides to smuggle himself on it which I guess he could have just done that in the first place. I don't really know why. Yep. Um, and then uh, but while um he's hiding, uh Kevin or Kevin, whatever <laughs> his name is, the son of Air Farazone, um, he's like doing like the inventory check or whatever, and he finds a sealed door. is like, dude, you can't do this, but one of them knocks over like a candle or something, a lantern, um, and also spills rum. I I could I don't know what. It could be, but essentially it catches on fire and then it blows up, Mm -hmm. which I couldn't really track why it would blow up unless there was C4 on (laughs) the ship. And I don't know if the elves have invented or the Numenorians have invented C4 yet. Mm. Um, You know, if they're the highest class of men and maybe they have that technology, plastic explosive seems like something the Numenorians would do. Um, I don't actually know, but. um,
1: Nope uh yeah i don't know you know what's funny is that we just we literally just recorded an episode this week uh where i say i'm pretty sure exactly say the words that um i would have loved to have seen a different explosion in lord of the rings uh which is the peter jackson films and i would have loved if they had done a scene like this in lord of the rings when they were trying to establish who the fuck boromir and faramir are uh and uh now watching it in this show i'm like god i'm actually really glad they didn't do it because that looked dumb (laughs) as shit Uh, It looked bad. Uh, I don't know why they're doing it. And I was under the impression, because like uh, little blonde boy, Kevin, whatever, uh, was like to Isildur when he finds him hiding. The thing was already leaking and he was like, oh, are you planning to burn the ship? So I can't quite figure out if Isildur is just a weird, embarrassing stowaway or if he's a terrorist. If he's a terrorist, fuck yes, dude, carry on. If not, what is going on? <laughs> like, what is happening with any of this? Why do the Numenoreans not plug their kegs? Why is the alcohol content of their booze so high? <laughs> Lots of questions. Uh, I don't really care to get the answers. Uh, I should say, however, Farrazone shows up uh, quite a bit in this, and uh, that is a man I would love to see on Game of Thrones because he's acting the shit out of this and is very like insidious and ominous uh, against his dipshit son. Um, and that is quite a good dynamic for Game of Thrones. <laughs> I wish it wasn't here. <laughs>
0: yeah I, uh, we'll get to Ferrazone in a minute, but I actually think like that actor, whoever he is, is performing. Um, like he he's trying like Morphed Clark like several other. they're like some of these people are really trying to like make a better show than what we're getting yeah. Um, uh, the other thing I've really found laughable about this is that this whole like boat sequence has a little stinger, um, which is very pointless to me. Basically, it's like Galadriel, Muriel, and Farrazone like gathering. Um, basically, it's like, oh, shit, one of our ships blew up, some shit's going down, we have to kind of reconsider. And they basically get together in this little room to decide that they need to get together tomorrow to discuss the matter <laughs> um, and bring hell Brand, which, okay, like, but this didn't need to be a scene. No. You could have just cut right to them the next morning debating whether to have this or whatever you're doing. Yeah. Um, it just felt very strange. It's like, we're having the scene to tell you that another scene is coming up. It's
1: very much um, like being on the left where we have meetings to have meetings. Um I think I can't remember what scene it is if it's this or if it's one of the other Numenor scenes with all of these nameless pointless characters. But like uh, uh oh my god what was your name for her woman Arian um <laughs> the funniest thing I've ever heard <laughs> I about <laughs> cried reading it. Uh so she's like running somewhere and her like dress skirt thing hikes all the way up to upper thigh, like her upper thigh totally exposed. And the thing that was cracking me up about this is that I pointed this out in uh, to Cotter when we were rewatching it in the previous episode where both Disa and, uh, who's the, there's another chick in here somewhere, uh, Bronwyn, both also have their upper thighs exposed in the exact same way. So someone on this set has an incredibly niche, incredibly specific fetish, and it's providing me with a lot of fun so whoever you are Fairfox, if you get galadriel in uh, i will drink to your health and your specific brand of weirdness uh but it's also just like why is this happening in such a weird way
0: yeah let's uh slowly move into like the galadriel and hull brand of all this um the other kind of stuff happening in numenor um, we get to see Halbrand working a forge in this episode, which, <laughs> hey, this was actually a decent scene. There was some good score. There's good Foley work. Um, it actually is trying to tell us something about the character, which, sure. Um, but then, um, essentially, Halbrand is summoned to talk to Ferrazone, Um, and he's basically... Um, it's basically setting up that, hey, Hallbrand, we you know, you're know you going to be amongst the people or you should be amongst the people like that are leading towards the Arrow and Deer plot or the people who are heading to the Southlands where I assume it will intersect with their own Deer plot. Um, and th- this at this point, like uh, Muriel, I think, says, um, you promised you'd unite your people for the cause of fighting the enemy, which is kind of a fib that Galadriel said. And then Galadriel's like, "Well, what I actually <laughs> meant is, in the course of doing this, he will figure out that that's his purpose." Which, hey, that's that's all right. That's kind of fun characterization stuff. But um, it's it all becomes a question of who is using who. Like, is Galadriel using Halbrand? Is Halbrand using Galadriel? Um, are they both trying to use each other? Uh, whatever it might be, but Halbrand's still kind of reluctant to like take that leadership role. Um, he basically says, "Find another head to crown," mm-hmm. and walks off in anger um and we'll come back to Hal Brand a little bit later i believe yeah uh, anything you want to say about that stuff?
1: I don't remember any of these scenes. I like I know I just watched them, and I just took extensive notes on them. I really don't remember anything. Um, I do think it's funny that it's taken us more than halfway through season one of The Rings of Power, a title adapted from Of the Forging of the Rings of Power, for us to see a character actually using a forge, and it's still not to make a fucking ring. Uh, so that's funny. Uh, it's also a shot-for-shot shot rehash of the prologue, uh foraging of the rings, shot of the the forge and peter jackson's lord of the rings uh so we're probably still maintaining the one pj uh reference every 90 seconds <laughs> Show. Uh,
0: we also get we also get a kind of an extended like the troops are training or preparing for their their adventure Ugh. with a bunch of people sparring um and galadriel's not happy with how their training is going they look like they suck at it <laughs> um so she decides to uh what's it called? Show the man how it's done. Uh, You know, I like the part where she's like stab, twist, gut. Uh, It reminds me of the Simpsons working in the fishery in Japan where they have to like gut all the fish and squids. Um, That's a really weak reference. I apologize. There's no joke there, but it just reminds me of that. Um, And basically Elendiel offers a promotion to anyone who can hit the woman.
1: (laughs) Uh, God in heaven. Good for the Mormons. It's
0: it's it's one of the things where it's like I like the scene if it wasn't in this show because yep. um, there's it it feels of a piece with say like Gurney Halleck working yeah. with um, Paul Atreides or even Cereal Pharrell and Aria. Sorry, I said I wouldn't do Game of Thrones anymore, <laughs> but it feels like of a piece with that. There's a lot of good little like like those training sequences are great because there's all this little advice thrown in, like fight with your feet, not with your arms. You, you know, you favor strength where balance is most important. Like all that stuff is pretty cool. Um, and then a bunch of people like start rushing to see like Galadriel fight like eight different dudes against whatever. And it was giving me, um, extreme uh, Matrix vibes. Mm. Like when Neo and Morpheus are first sparring in that dojo and then Mouse goes to the rest of the crew is like, hey, everyone, Neo and Morpheus are fighting. (laughs) Um, And that's basically like the vibe was for this, which again, I would love this in any other episode, but it just felt weird here. Um, I don't really know if there's anything to say. If I wanted to be charitable and give it a thematic meaning, I think it is kind of showing you know like the power of one versus many that you know even one person can change the course of the future like all that bullshit that Galadriel says to Frodo um there's also something where um you know part of the whole plan with destroying the ring is like Sauron would never suspect sending in like one person with the ring to destroy it um so there is like themes there but i have to like work to make them actually
1: make sense yeah i'm also just like i get that the bit they're trying to do here is like oh isn't galadriel really tough and really strong except they've done this in every single episode every single episode galadriel through incredibly embarrassingly bad fight choreography fights between three and eight men all by herself. And she always comes out top and she always wins. And I'm like, okay, congrats, she's won. This is really exciting. I'm really enthralled. I'm really glad that we have a woman character doing this because this is something I've never seen before And ev- except in every fucking Star Wars and Marvel and whatever, Lord of the Thrones and Game of the Rings. Like I'm so bored of this bit. And like, I want someone to properly smack the shit out of Galadriel because I think that at this point would feel woke and progressive to me. <laughs>
0: Yeah, just go watch Captain America: The Winter Soldier. The fight sequences with Black Widow and that are pretty good, and you'll get something more out of it, I think. Jeez, um, did I really just say that?
1: Well, hey. Anyway,s
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll talk Farazan next. Uh, I think the actor who's playing Far uh, Farazan, who I don't have his name handy, is actually doing a pretty tremendous job yeah. with what you co- what you said is Game of Thrones material. Like he's being a little bit of a shit to his son, Kevin. Um, and, uh, we, we get, we get, we actually have a pretty good, uh, conversation here between Kevin and Farazone, where he's like, why are you doing this? Or or Kevin is saying, why are we doing this? You know, this is exactly what the old King wanted and you oppose. And Farazone has this whole thing where it's folly to kick against popular sentiment. It's better to use it. It's kind of like one of those things you cannot redirect. You cannot change the way the water flows, but you can go with it and, you know, redirect it at certain points. Um. So it's, it's, it's all right. I mean, I kind of get it and I do can kind of see that this is setting up Farazorn's push for power, um, which again, feels more Game of Thronesy than this, even if it is kind of, a similar rise to power, if you might say so. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I really have anything else to say about this, other than the actor is doing work.
1: Yeah, he sure is. Uh, he's really good. He's also, if that's not a wig, uh, his hair is uh, spectacular. If it is a wig, it's wild and definitely one of the more interesting wigs I've seen in this show. I wish they were all like that. Um. the thing I, I like, I don't even know. It's not worth my time and energy criticizing this vis-a-vis the book. However, I'm going to do it anyways, because I'm a fucking glutton for punishment. Um. But this kind of scene, this little discussion would have been the perfect moment to introduce the fact that, like, um, Farazone in canon, which God who gives a shit anymore, uh, goes to uh defend the numenorians who have colonized the southern part of harad uh or not the southern part of harad who have co- colonized the northern part of harad the su- the, the the south uh, and um uh, they're being terrorized by Sauron and he uh hauls ass uh to go defend the the colonizers uh and it is an implicit and slightly weird for tolkien but but definitely there uh, critique of the things that a, an overextended empire does to the moral core of that empire right like like his. Tolkien's argument in having own capture Sauron uh, and trigger the d- downfall of Numenor via a defense of uh, the Numenorean colonizers in Harad is essentially that you have sent people out to colonize things that are far out with what you should what you should have kept in 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 your keeping. Numenor was gifted to you by the Valar uh, as a reward. Um, Numenor itself was paradise, and you were so greedy and so gluttonous that. You expanded beyond what you could sustain. Essentially, the Roman Empire critique, uh, and in su- uh, expanding beyond what you could sustain, you had to go defend them from these threats on the, the the periphery of your empire. And lo and behold, going and getting involved in a war and the threats, the, uh, the the peripheral threats of your empire has actually triggered the downfall of your kingdom. Look at your imperial hubris. Look at what this has wrought on you. And and this is not me putting like a leftist gloss, pseudo leftist gloss, on Tolkien's writing. This is actually Tolkien's critique. Um, and it would have. Have been interesting given that they paused the <laughs> quote pace of the show uh to have this conversation that is something that you could have fit in here and you could have had Farazon basically saying look security matters have arisen we need to go defend our people um except that they took out everything about harad uh took out everything about the numenorean colon- colonization because they're all just like fucking uh i don't know like uh weird kind of pseudo pacifist kind of uh, like isolationists, I guess. Uh, and instead, it's just a meaningless war. Uh, and when when uh, Kemen is like, uh, you know, why are we going to fight for Gladriel? He's right. They are literally just going to fight for Gladriel. Like that is it. Gladriel's a weirdo with like paranoia issues. And they're like, we're going to follow that. And there's no sort of reason for Numenor to actually be in, be in this. So when Gladriel later reveals that she's like negotiated five ships and 500 men, which is a laughably small number, I'm like, that's about right. Like this is really a minor issue and they're not really sending out the cavalry here by like, they're basically just doing a targeted drone strike, but for some reason they're like appending the president to the like predator drone. That's going to drop the missile. <laughs>
0: I was about to say, this is like what um, some of the slave cities give to so just like, take your boats and here's some men, and just like, get the far, yeah. get far away from us. That's all it is. Um, I'm going to kind of fast forward to, through some of this stuff. Cause it's not that interesting, but essentially <laughs> Um, we get a closing scene with Galadriel and Halbrand, where like they're just kind of pensive and talking. Halbrand's looking into the fire, very Stannis Baratheon style. Um, but the shot almost feels like it's the fireplace from Bag End, which there's your ninety seconds of <laughs> Peter Jackson for you. Uh, basically, Halbrand's like, "Why do you keep fighting? Whose dagger is that? Why keep going on?" And Galadriel says, "Because she cannot stop," which is something that everything we've seen so far in the show has already told us. Yep. Uh, I so it's like I we know she's Captain America. We don't need you know her to do the I can do this all day speech. <laughs> um, one thing I did um, kind of like is she said her men abandoned her. Um, she thinks that people can no longer distinguish her from what she is fighting, which just kind of makes me think she's on this like Moby Dick style revenge tour, yeah. like Ahab is. Um, I want to call it like Galat <laughs> right, I I'll, I'll work on that. But, but it just like, and like, I like that because I actually think Moby Dick bangs. I think it's like incredible, incredible story. Maybe one of the best ever. Actually, that's not a very hot take. I think a lot (laughs) of people think that, but um, like, I like that stuff, but it's all very much like, sure. It's, it's not giving any new characterization. Like I like Halbrand like standing up to Galadriel, but it's not telling me new about anything either uh, about either of them rather. Um, and this is kind of broken up because Halbrand is summoned to the queen regent and he leaves his pouch behind and someone seems to grab it, but we don't see who, um, what's in the pouch, what's in the (laughs) pouch. We'll talk about that later. Um, and then when we see near the end of the episode, uh, Halbrand is all armored in the Numenorian armor, which I actually think the Numenorean looks pretty good here. Uh, and he's leading a column of men to take ship. Um, And there's like, you know, people in the streets that are handing them flowers. It's like the happy version of the Faramir death march in Return of the King, Um, which, you know, I I like when they do a callback but twists on it because that's you're doing something, you know, as opposed to just trying to. Pull out the same kind of sentiment, but either which way, it's like some decent long shots of the ship setting sail. Um, we find out that a seal door is amongst the men. He was, he thought he would be part of the cavalry, but he's literally there to pick up horse shit, <laughs> which is not a metaphor for the show, but it can be if you want it to be. So, um, I, I honestly, all this stuff is like. It's annoying to me because I felt like at the end of last episodes like all right all these people are leaving Numenor and we're going to see them do stuff and then there's just another episode of them hanging around yeah. which it it can be okay I've seen plenty of episodes where characters hang around and that's fun but nothing here gave me anything new except maybe the airfare zone stuff yeah. um everything else was pretty much stuff I had already known from the first three to four episodes
1: yes yeah. um and, and I think one of the things is like the this the season is trying to um I don't remember how long in Game of Thrones the show they are like vamping leading up to the Battle of the bastards but it felt like a lifetime and that's not derogatory like it felt like it was ages like years in the making to get to that that battle and it rocked when it came but it feels like whatever they're gonna do in this stupid Southlands thing when all of these plots finally converge. It feels like they're trying to vamp for that, like it is the Battle of the Bastards, but it's not because it's like 300 orcs and like two weird Freako Elves. And, like, oh, like 500 of the dumbest, drunkest, like, like officials Numenor has to to offer. And so I'm like, just get to the point, get to the disappointing battle so that we can all, like, so we can basically record our podcast being like, yep, that was a shit battle, and move on and, like, get back to uh, watching things that don't suck. Um, the one positive thing I will say is, nope, it's not in this scene, never mind, uh, the armor is Tolkien-esque, but hold that in your heads for the end of this never-ending episode. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I don't think we're going to hit our, uh, we're going to make it under 80 minutes like we want to uh, for these. But, um, oh, I, th- I thought I had something to say.
1: <laughs> so did the showrunners.
0: <laughs> well, uh, then w- w- with that, I might as well just move on to kind of the last plot line, which is Owl Round and the Dwarves. Uh, we start with uh, Gilgalad hosting Duran for dinner in Linden, presumably. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's basically like, a dinner where they're kind of like trading barbs is like Gilgalad super interested in what are the dwarves digging for, and Dur- Durin's like, why are you guys doing a colonialism in Linden Basically, why are you guys expanding outwards and building more and all that stuff? Um, he pulls a neat little trick on Gilgalad, which is like, oh, this table we're eating on, this is sacred and special, and. Uh, it really belongs in the Hall of Kings of Dwarves, or yada, yada, yada. And Gilgalad, thinking he's doing statecrafty goodness, is like, oh, you're right. Please forgive me. We'll send it back with you once you head back. Um, and then, kind of, the stinger for this episode reveals that um, it's not sacred at all. Dora just wanted to get a table for Disa, um, which, you know, could bet. It's, yeah. <laughs> It's fine. Well, um, you have to love I, and support a wife, I think it's actually guy. enjoyable. What's that? <laughs> Sorry. Oh, <laughs> Go ahead. I, I heard you. <laughs> I, I heard
1: you. <laughs> this episode is making uh, me loopy.
0: Yeah, it, that's fair enough. Um, and then Elrond, 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 Ayn Rand uh, meets Elrond here, um, which actually could be the ethos of this show. Truly. Who's to say? Elrond um, and Gilgalad kind of chat afterwards. Um, they talk, so they add a whole bunch of like crazy Silmaril talk here, Jesus. Um, which I think we'll, we'll maybe talk about in the spoiler section. But um, I do kind of like how they approach telling the story. Um, I don't think it looked great, but the idea of it is pretty idea. Pretty smart, rather. Uh, is pretty idea. <laughs> That's funny. Um, it's basically, they're talking about like an ancient elven warrior was like, kneeling at the like some holy tree um like that was in the mist misty mountains um and like it cuts to like a balrog showing up and them it doesn't show them fighting but it kind of just insinuates that with the narration and the way like the camera is pulling in and out and zooming around these two um and basically they seem to hint that the silmarils or a lost simaril might have been present at this battle and it like leaked down to create the ore that becomes mithril Mm -hmm. i guess we might as well talk about this now um what wh- what is this
1: <laughs> yeah no i that that is also what i asked um so the funny context for this and i was going to excuse this as oh well they don't have access to the Silmarillion, so this is kind of weird but then i flip through the appendices on a hunch uh and all of the things that would give this the context to make this scene not fucking weird uh, are in the appendices and so So Gil-Galad has had a weird kind of parentage thing where, like, Tolkien wrote his parents as, like, one—well, his father is one person and then later went back to another person. And then Christopher Tolkien published the first version in The Silmarillion, but then was later like, oh, that was a mistake. So there's, like, a bit of, like, oh, who's Gil-Galad's dad? Um, And my preferred take, which is not Tolkien's preferred take, but is the one that's published in The Silmarillion, is that his father is Fingon, who is son of Fingolfin, who is half-brother— to Feanor, uh, who made the Silmarils. Uh, so there's that connection there. And then Elrond, uh, was raised, uh, in part by, uh, Maglar and Maedhros, who are sons of Feanor, who made the Silmarils. So both of the fellows in this conversation are intimately aware of the Silmarils and what their relationship, like, their very real and serious relationship is to the world. Like, I, like, I cannot stress this enough. Elrond has lost his, years off of his life and happiness because of the Silmarils. His mother is effectively dead to him because she threw herself into the ocean to get rid of a Silmaril. His father has a Silmaril surgically implanted in his brain and now has to go back and forth across the night sky to keep the Silmaril from getting in Morgoth's hand. There is almost nobody in this world who knows what the Silmarils are and what they mean to people more than Elrond. To say nothing of the fact that this quote-unquote lost Silmaril is the Silmaril that Maglor... So it could either be the, the Silmaril that Maglor or Midroth had. Um, I think it's probably the one that Maglor had. Um, he casts it into the sea while Elrond is still around. So that is Elrond's like, surrogate father having cast away the third Silmaril into the sea. Elrond knows about this. And Elrond is having to tell the story about the Silmarils, like, they're this lost and ancient thing. Bro, no, that was fucking yesterday for you. That was yesterday. This is like if Elrond's trying to recount his, like, Elrond, age 27, is trying to recount his 27th birthday and being like, it is as distant to me as the fires of Rome. Like, shut the fuck up. Anyways, uh, th- th- none of this is in the Silmarillion. There are three Silmarils. There were Silmarils, three. Uh, one of them, uh, from uh one of them is destroyed by uh well whatever two of them are destroyed uh, or removed from the game uh in uh the issue of uh the war of wrath uh one of them is cast uh, alongside Majros because he's literally clutching it into uh, the fires of uh, an unnamed volcano they are all out of play which is the key thing uh, by the time the second age rolls around um i don't know what the fuck they're doing I don't know what the fuck they're doing. Um, I know that they had that stupid quirky thing where they were like, Elrond, name's Mithril. Because it's not Mithrond, it's Mithril, says Elrond, which is stupid. Um, and now they're having Elrond explain the Silmarils in a totally insane way. I think maybe the like guy, the elven warrior who's meant to be fighting, was maybe meant to be a son of Feanor. Could be Mathros, could be Maglor, could be Karofin, probably. Uh, could also have been Fingon uh, or Fingolfin, because they both tussled with Balrogs. The real answer here is nobody knows. Nobody knows. Because this is just so far off piece. There's like almost no way of reconciling it with like reality. Um, I just think it's really dumb. They basically gone. This thing, Mithril, is shiny. Well, the Silmarils are also shiny. And these fucking assholes will love that we mentioned the Silmarils. So let's just say that the Silmarils created Mithril. Okay, cool. Great. That's fine. Yep.
0: Yeah. Um I none of that whatever is for me. Yeah. All I just figured out is that we should probably be doing a secret like dad watch for Gilgalad. Um, <laughs> the Gil Gadad theory. We can start doing that in our spoiler section. Um, that might be more interesting. Um, anyways, so after all that, uh Gilgalad and Elrond are still talking. Um, Gilgalad saying our tree is dying because water blight Ganon watered our tree or something and now it's <laughs> decaying. Uh and he talks about the light of the Eldar is fa- fading. Um yep. I do he does have some stuff about hope that I don't hate. Like he talks about like the Eye of Hope, which you know obviously stands out because Eye of Sauron, and Eye of Hope. It's kind of a nice contrast. The Eye of Hope is the first to awaken, last to shut. This is all stuff I could get behind if I was more interested in the show. Yeah. Um, but whatever, there's a bunch of that talk. Uh Celebrimbor or Celebrimbor, geez, <laughs> I think I I think of Gil Salad and Celery Brimbor. <laughs> I think are just like kind of cross cr- crossing paths in my mind. Um uh, so uh we cut to a scene later where Celebrimbor wants Elrond to essentially make a play or make a claim on the mithril because it can help them restore the light of the Valar um assuming it's like transitive property from the Silmaril yeah. into the mithril and I'm just mostly like mithril was cool when it was just a shiny shirt yep. um when it was just like some fun armor and stuff but um it, it, th- this is the cursed thought I had which is going to ruin it for everyone is like are they making the Silmarills basically infinity stones. Yes. Um, it's like it's basically that. Yep. I I I it's hard for me to think of it. I fully expect fucking Galadriel to have an infinity gauntlet by the end of the show <laughs> and like the Silmaril's in it, and then she's like throwing a moon at Engine Stark. I, I really don't know.
1: Yeah, I mean, that is basically where we're headed as well. And, like, the other thing is, right, like, they're basically just filling out Wikipedia entries at this point because they want to be the guys who said for the first time that the Mithril, like, that Mithril was lit by the Silmarils, and they want that to be their mark on history, which is why I hate them and think they're jackasses. But, like... Um, you know, some things don't need explained, like, like some things really don't. And I know there's this kind of popular trend of being like, oh, J.R. Tolkien over explains everything, but no, he actually doesn't. And he's actually very careful about what he does and doesn't explain. And so one might think that if there's a reason he didn't do Mithril, the origin story, There might be a reason for that, and it's because it's a fucking boring story. I really don't care what the alloy content of Mithril is. Neither does anybody else. Like, why are we sitting through this other than these guys are obviously fleecing Jeff Bezos for insane amounts of money, uh, and we are all the victims of it.
0: Before we get into our spoiler section, we're going to uh, thank some of our patrons but if you are hopping off here before we do that, um, please support us at patreon.com slash my pod, where you get early access to episodes, bonus content, and your very own Middle Earth name, such as...
1: Lothamon of Palinka, who is Johnny Flores Jr.
0: The Silent Spider, Guardian of Kirith Ungol, who is at The Revelator.
1: Haley Glyphs, a.k.a. I Wendil.
0: Aranro Minyatar... Uh, who is Matthew Abbott.
1: And Idreiner of Cokorthad, who is Matty Hugh.
0: Those are our $10 patrons who get shouted out every episode. And now we'd like to thank two of our $5 patrons.
1: Thank you to Alanisar Rovind, also known as Tara Burnett.
0: And we'd like to thank Meaundil of too. U- to whatever <laughs> yeah <laughs> the, the key was Meowndil because <laughs> meow. <laughs> um and that is connor beaton who has no relevance whatsoever to any of no, our no absolutely books. not no fucking clue and feel free to send us your emails about the rings of power at my brother my captain my at gmail.com and follow us at my bro my cat my pod on instagram and twitter and now the spoiler section
1: everybody welcome to a game i like to call what's in the box um i can't do brad pitt i'm sorry uh it's also brad pitt's uh wife's head is in the box so let's ask the question on today's game of what's in the box what's in uh aragorn halbrand's necklace uh any guesses manu
0: um sorry to make an a song of ice and fire joke but i assume it's davos's finger bones um they don't really talk about it too much in the show, but Davos had his hand shortened by Stannis Baratheon, but he kept those finger bones as a reminder of his justice and wore it around his neck. Holy shit. Um, he lost it in the Battle of Blackwater, uh, but that's all I can think of. It has to be something small, um, so I'm gonna guess it's probably gonna be like a cast to like forge a ring or something like that. Nice. Um, but I, in terms of real ideas, I in terms of small things that could exist that would matter unless they just go fully buckwild and there's like a slow rail in there I just really don't know what else it could be but at this point I can't literally cross it off
1: yeah no that's fair uh, I, that ring idea that ring cast idea is really really good uh, I would not have thought of that at all because I'm a cynical fuck um, I think uh, in all seriousness that it's going to be a dagger and they need to go to a very specific location which is the grave site of the corpse of Peter Jackson's films and if they hold that dagger up at exactly the right angle it'll reveal a a really important wayfarers map to a tv show that doesn't fucking suck
0: wow we made two references to the rise of skywalker dagger in this who would have thought (laughs) who would have thought that that's that's what we're comparing this show to just so yes and that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is mybrothermycaptainmypodcast at gmail.com and mybromycaptmypod on Twitter. You can support this podcast by subscribing to patreon.com slash where you'll get access to special bonus content and early access to episodes. I've been Manu, also known as My Nuclear Bomb. You can find me covering Metal Gear Solid over at Podcast Sounds Frontiers and a Song of Ice and Fire and House of the Dragon over at Nauticast ASOIAF.
1: And I've been Emily, also known as JR Tweeting, which is where you can find me on Twitter, uh, trying to nick some of that Numenorian C4 to blow up all of the boats going to Valinor, because haha, the elves suck.
0: Toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd a.k.a. DJ Empirical, a.k.a. Ethraglier Adretheon. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king. Oh, God, I had a really good point that I was going to make, but I completely forgot it now. Oh, um, here we go. Uh, Stephen, cut out the last five seconds. Uh, (laughs) Stephen, absolutely don't. (laughs)